Welcome to the East Westicism Podcast, where our host, Todd Perlmutter, shares the lessons he's learned spending eight years living with gurus, monks, lamas, and shamans across 35 countries and five continents. Join in the journey as he brings the best scientifically proven methods for living your best life from the East and the West straight to you. The path to peace, love, health, and happiness starts here. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to Path to Peace with Todd Perlmutter. I'm your host, Todd Perlmutter. In the last podcast, Arriving in India, I talked about meeting my friend's family in Mumbai and them inviting me to come stay at their ashram and meet their guru and stay with them at their house on the ashram. And so I traveled for a couple weeks in India before meeting them at the ashram, which they told me was the largest ashram in India. So I was very excited to go. And it was a very secretive kind of ashram, like no outside visitors. The only reason I got to go was his family got permission from the guru himself that I could come and stay with them. They had a house on the property. This ashram was humongous, like 30 square miles, just massive. And it was so beautiful and clean. Every, you know, shrub was perfectly trimmed and the whole grounds were perfectly maintained. One morning at like 3 a.m., I noticed that there were all these uh, volunteers sweeping the street. And they did that every single night. I mean, this place was pristine. I felt like I was in the movie Pleasantville or the Stepford Wives. Like, everything was too perfect. Everyone was so nice. Everyone had a huge smile on their face. You know, everyone was there to just be happy and get happy and spread happiness. I mean, it was such a lovely and inviting place. But there was this element of secrecy. You had to be initiated to be trained in the meditation. And in order to be initiated, you had to go to the ashram for a year or two, or at least one of their centers, which they had dozens around the world. I mean, this place was massive. Their area where they congregate to have their services a couple times a week is so massive you can't see the other end of it it's able to fill like a million people and there was maybe one or two hundred thousand people when I was there in this massive massive tented outdoor area and just being in India which is kind of a dusty place there's a lot of litter on the ground to be in this immaculate place was almost a spiritual feeling in itself. And being in a ashram where everyone is super nice, it it's contagious. And even that gives you this overwhelming sense of, you know, joy and relief to feel like you just belong. And, you know, once a week or twice a week, we would go to these massive services and the guru 
would sit up on stage and a couple people would talk and sing songs and humongous area where everyone sits on the floor. And I was there with his family and they, because they have their own apartment there, they must have given enough money because they also had these great seats that I, and I sat with them and no phones allowed inside, no recording devices was their main concern. It was very secretive. I was taking notes in my notebook because I was writing a book. And eventually they said, no notebooks. <laughs> I remember it very vividly, uh, what they would talk about. The services, the, the guru sat in absolute stillness, looking out into the crowd. Even his eyes didn't move. He was just still for about two hours. And then he would speak for maybe 20 minutes. And the whole thing about this ashram is how you need a perfect master who embodies the spirit of God in order to become enlightened. And they would talk about, you know, they believed in reincarnation and doing good deeds, meditating for two and a half hours a day. But certain things that I observed didn't totally line up with what they taught. The guru was a rather heavy-set fellow. And, you know, in my Western mind, I'm thinking, shouldn't a perfect being be perfectly healthy and fit and have control over his eating? And at one point, he even said to the whole crowd, he said, some people have spread some rumors that, you know, I got cancer and that I had previously said that a perfect master never gets sick. But I wanted to tell you that the only reason I got cancer was because I wanted to show you all as an example how to experience cancer with acceptance and grace and how to overcome it. So I only did it as a lesson to teach you all. You know, he had an answer for everything. And he also even addressed the crowd and said, some of you all are telling rumors that I love to dance with girls and sing karaoke. And yes, I do. I love it. And there's nothing wrong with singing or dancing. You know, it's a, it's a traditional state in India. And I can understand that some people might think that a guru shouldn't dance or sing. I don't have those ideas being a Westerner. I don't see any sin in singing or dancing. But, you know, I did kind of get the sense if he's bringing up dancing, I wonder if there's more serious rumors. You know, I was getting a little bit of a cult vibe. And what we all hear in the West about gurus is, you know, the worst thing that could happen is of a sexual nature. So I hope that wasn't the case. But I found it strange that he would bring that up if that was all that was going on. But I went along. I enjoyed my time there. It's a beautiful place, great food, great people. It's so nice to be out of the real world and to be surrounded by people who are all joined by a common desire for enlightenment. 
and joy. And everybody smiles and everybody you feel safe around. It's just a, it's a beautiful feeling. For the foreigners, they get to have a special seating with the guru and ask questions and have a Q&A session. And so I attended those every chance I got. And a couple times I'd ask a question. And one time I asked a question, I said, you said that the universe is like a painting. But if for any painting, there has to be a painter and God is that painter. So you know, there's a God because the painting exists. And I said, if that's the case, that everything needs a creator, then what created God? And he just kind of answered, and he said, well, it's really more of a chicken and egg scenario. Nobody knows what came first. And I said, oh, okay, that's kind of, sounds profound, but it doesn't really answer my question and I don't really get it, but okay, thank you. <laughs> Most of my questions were of this uh, splitting hairs, if you will. You know, I said, if everything is reincarnated, how come the number of species and living beings is expanding? Wouldn't it always stay the same? But at some point in history, there was one life form, and then there became two and four and then trillions. But if everything dies and comes back as something else, wouldn't it always stay the same? And he said, well, sometimes... New life forms come into existence, and uh, there's many worlds and universes out there, so can always be a roughly same number. Well, that doesn't doesn't change anything, but um, that's a fine answer. But sometimes people would ask questions, and I had a little trouble with the answer. This one woman, she said. I know I must have done something terrible in my past life to bring myself some really horrible karma because I was repeatedly abused as a child and sexually abused. And she's like, I just don't know what I did, though. And I was expecting the guru to say, you know, you didn't do anything to deserve this. No human being deserves this. This isn't your fault. But he said kind of the opposite. He said, well, we all have our karma to bear. And he said it kind of with a coldness. But she seemed grateful, and I wanted to hug her, but it's India, and I didn't know if that was customarily okay. But most people, they asked questions that were very fawning. They were like, you know, I, I love you so much. Thank you so much for everything. A lot of no questions, a lot of just praise, you know, people very, very in deep. Later on, I would do some research about the ashram and find out that the guru is one of the richest people in India, and that a lot of followers would, were upset because he would preach about spiritual wealth and non-material wealth, and yet he's living in a mansion and has servants and is the richest guy in the world. <laughs> but all that aside, 
the weeks I spent there were incredible. I mean, everyone was just so happy and it was contagious and everyone was so generous and the tea was really good. They had a lot of tea. Maybe they put something in it. <laughs> um, but I, I, even though I, they, I tried to be initiated for my research, they wouldn't initiate me because I had to attend this ashram for years before they would even think about it. But I was able to find someone who would tell me a little bit about what the initiation is like and what the meditation is like. They won't teach you the meditation either until you've been initiated. So I was able to learn the meditation from someone I had met there. And he told me, what you do is you visualize the guru in your mind's eye with your eyes closed, sitting down. And you repeat a mantra. It can be Om, the mantra is you know, rather meaningless. But uh, you repeat a mantra in your head and you focus on the image of the guru. And so I just did this for the two and a half hours every day, which is a long time. And it's very difficult at first. This was really my first serious experience with meditation. And, you know, at first you're very restless. And I'm opening my eyes a lot, looking around, scratching, itching, moving my neck around and fidgeting a lot. But by the second hour, kind of settle down. I mean, you really give your body a chance to settle in and relax in a way that I never experienced before. And focusing on a mantra is a really good way to begin meditation because clearing your mind and just focusing on your breath is very difficult when you're first beginning. Your mind may be racing, you might be thinking about a million things. And so a mantra, you're just thinking about one thing. And before you think about no things, it's easy to think about one thing. Thinking about no things, like in a breath meditation, can be very difficult. But mantra is a very powerful way to focus your mind when it's got a million things going on. So whenever you're meditating for the first time, I highly recommend a mantra. Try OM. It works wonders. Just repeat it over and over in your mind, just like this. Om. Om. Don't worry about the speed. Just let it flow naturally. Not rushed. Just very effortlessly and naturally. Like you turn on a faucet and the mantra comes out. And you just let it keep coming. You will probably get even distracted from that. And you'll start thinking about other things. You'll lose the mantra. That's okay. Just bring it back. Gently bring it back over and over as you create this skill of focusing and concentrating in your mind that we've never really practiced before. And this will increase your attention span, 
increase your ability to focus. And when you can focus on something besides the constant stream of thoughts in your brain, a deep peace comes over you. Very powerful, very profound, very relaxing. You're giving your mind a rest, very restful, rejuvenating, energizing. The focus on the guru thing, I think take that with a grain of salt. If there is a God or a Messiah or a spiritual being that you want to focus on, go for it. It it does create this religious worshiping sense. But I did get the sense that when they apply it to the guru, it, it kind of feeds this cult of personality, kind of a survival mechanism for this ashram. The truth of the matter is there's no perfect person. Putting anyone up on a pedestal above yourself diminishes your own power and elevates a flawed human to the point where even if they say something that goes against our common sense, we'll do it because they must have our best intentions at heart. The truth is we are our own guru and others can help show us the way, but it is up to us to walk down that path. It is up to us to learn the lessons and we have all the knowledge within us that we need and other people can merely shine a light on that truth. Our intuition, our instincts, and our DNA contains all the wisdom that any other species has to survive and thrive. After a few weeks of being at this beautiful place with these beautiful people, learning this beautiful meditation from, I will even say this, enlightening guru for so many people, I knew it was time to be on my way. I didn't, I, I was beginning to think I might fall for this cult if I stay any longer. And I didn't want to end my learning and discovery. I felt I had learned everything I needed to at this place and I needed to move on and learn even more. And so I left the ashram and headed to a meditation retreat called Vipassana, founded by a spiritual teacher named Goenka, who teaches the original Buddhist teachings before Buddhism became a religion. And in my next podcast, I will talk about that experience, what I learned, and how it benefited and changed my life. So thank you so much for listening to my story about the first ashram I went to. Please like, subscribe, and give a five-star review, even if you don't want to. <laughs> and if you want to give a four-star review, make it a five. If you want to give a three-star review, just don't even bother. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Follow us on social media at Todd Pearl, T-O-D-D-P-E-R-E-L. And go to eastwesticism.org to take a meditation class or course. E-A-S-T-W-E-S-T-I-C-I-S-M dot O-R-G. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next time. Peace and love. You are listening to the East Westicism Podcast. 
Be sure to visit us at eastwesticism.org to join the conversation and receive enlightening emails. Until next time.